This evening's reading is taken from 1, 1 Kings chapter 16, starting at verse 29, and this can be found on, found on page 357 of the Church Bible. It's 1 Kings chapter 16, starting at verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of, of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethel, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho, he laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segeb, in accordance with the word of the Lord, spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, Except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have instructed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up, and because there had been no rain in the land, sorry, then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Zidon, and stay there. I have instructed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar, so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord of your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me and from what you have and bring it to me. And then making something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. 
So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with the word of the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him up to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with, by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Thank you, Brenda. Good evening, everyone. Um, do keep um, those verses open. As Lisa said earlier on, this week and next week, we're going to be dipping our toes into 1 Kings. It's thoroughly exciting. I love the book of 1 and 2 Kings. Um, I had the privilege of teaching through it at Litty a few years back, and I'm very excited to be back in it over the next couple of Sundays. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into these verses. Father, thank you that you are the Lord of the universe. Thank you that you are the Lord who sustains the world and everything in it. Thank you, Father, for making yourself known clearly to us in your Son and also through your words. And so we pray tonight and over the next couple of Sundays that you would help us to get to know you better we might respond in worship. For Jesus' glory we ask. Amen. One of the benefits of, of looking back is that we can learn from the mistakes that others and ourselves have made. And of course this involves looking back at the mistakes that God's people have made. At the start of 1 Kings... Israel is in a good place. Solomon is king, and under his rule, the temple is built. But then things start to go south. The kingdom splits into two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And the overall trajectory as you follow one and two kings is downhill. By the end of two kings, both Israel and Judah have been taken into exile. And so these books are incredibly helpful. Helpful for the original readers, the southern kingdom in exile. They could look back, see the mistakes that the previous generations had made. And but also helpful for us. And helpful for us as we look back, we can see the mistakes that the previous generations made. But more than that, not only to see them but to learn from them, to 
to learn from their mistakes, to make sure that we don't make the same mistakes, or more accurately, more accurately, the same big mistake. Idolatry. Turning away from worshipping the Lord's, the gods, the true gods, in order to worship false gods. We're picking the story up as Ahab becomes king, and though it may look a good time politically and economically, he's in charge for 22 years. His alliance with the Sidonians by marriage would have led to trade deals. It is clearly not a good time spiritually. Did you notice what we're told? Verse 30, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. End of verse 33. Ahab did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. It's quite the record, isn't it? Congratulations, Ahab. You're the worst king on records. The Lord has never been so angry with a king as he is with you. Just like many of the previous kings of Israel, Ahab has committed the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. After the split, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, Jeroboam is the first king of Israel, and he sets up places of worship in Bethel and Dan. He makes two golden calves, one for each place, and says to Israel, here are your gods, go and worship them. But notice... Pretending that Yahweh is a metal cow, well, that's just the start of what Ahab did. Verse 31, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, just a small thing for him, he also married married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Do you notice the repetition? Baal, 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 Baal. This king is turning his back on the Lord, the true gods, and is beginning to worship Baal. He sets up an altar. He builds a temple. In Canaanite mythology, Baal was a weather god. So in those days, if you wanted the rain to come so that um, your crops could grow, so that you could have food, well, you would worship Baal and you would pray to Baal. And this is what the leader of Israel is doing. This is what the leader of God's people is doing and encouraging the rest to do too. Now, we'll come back to this more in chapter 18, but over these chapters, there's a showdown, if you like, between Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, and Baal. And so, can you think of the best and, indeed, the most beautifully ironic way for God to expose Baal? 17 verse 1, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my words. Oh, you're a weather god, are you, Baal? 
Well, I say no rain. Over to you. What are you going to do about it? Now, we'll come back to this showdown more next week. Because you see that the lack of rain isn't simply about exposing Baal as a fake. The focus here is on judgment for Israel. Remember, the leader of God's people is encouraging God's people to worship idols. Can you imagine how awful that is? In fact, as we'll see in chapter 18 next week, things have got so bad in Israel that Ahab's wife Jezebel sets up a state-sponsored genocide program to kill off the Lord's prophets. You see, the Lord doesn't get angry because he's tired or grumpy or because he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. He's angry because of idolatry. People turning from him and worshipping fake gods. That is why in these verses the Lord announces judgment on idolatrous Israel. Three headings to take us through the narrative. That's the first. The Lord announces judgment on idolatrous Israel. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 11. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain. And the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Do you see the warning? that God gives to his people, shack up with the pagan gods, and the real God will turn off the taps. Now with that in mind, 17 verse 1 again, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my words. We don't get much of an introduction to Elijah. He sort of comes onto the scene quite abruptly, And we know that his name means my God is Yahweh. He's a faithful person. We know that he's a prophet. That means his role was to bring God's word from God to the people. And part of that role, therefore, meant reminding God's people of the blessings for keeping the covenant and the curses for breaking the covenant. But of course, also, therefore, announcing judgment when they broke the covenant. That's what Elijah does here. The people have turned to worship other gods. And so just like Deuteronomy says, the Lord announces judgment. No rain. It's worth saying, isn't it, that judgment is always announced in advance of it actually happening. But don't make the mistake that a time delay... That doesn't mean that God is bluffing. When the Lord promises judgment, when the Lord promises that Jesus is going to return and judge the nations, it will come true. We get an example of it, and in fact, actually in the end of chapter 16. See, just after the people um, go into the land and they capture the city of Jericho, Joshua says, Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. 
at the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. It's exactly what happens to heal at the end of chapter 16. Now, of course, this could be um, here as another example of the kind of defiance against God's word that is clearly happening at this time. But it also shows us, doesn't it? When the Lord says there will be judgments, there will be judgments. He's not bluffing. And of course, it does so with the lack of rain. We'll only have to wait one week to the end of chapter 18 to see the rain return. But the people at the time, three and a half years of no rain. We might think, well, that's lovely, um, all of the rain that we've had recently. But of course, in a place so dependent upon rain for crops and food, it's an awful thing. It means death. Again, notice the irony. Remember, in those days, if you wanted rain, you would worship Baal and pray to Baal. And yet when Israel do that, the reverse happens. No rain. And yet it's not the only form of judgment in the chapter, verses 2 and 3. Then the words of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. Why does the Lord tell Elijah to get up and pack his bags? Well, on one level, it's quite a simple answer. Protection. As I say, Jezebel goes about butchering the Lord's prophets. And so the Lord tells Elijah to get out of there in order to protect him. To go east of the Jordan, that's quite significant because that means going out of the land of Israel. But on another level, judgment. Remember, Elijah is a prophet. He is the way that the Lord would speak to Israel. And so by removing Elijah, what are you doing? Removing the word of God. It's like he's putting his people on hold. Two droughts, two famines, if you like. No rain. No words be the equivalent today of God removing all of the Bibles from church. Imagine the travesty that would be. Or as sad is the case, a church where the Bible is not taught. A severe famine. It's very dangerous, isn't it? To forfeit God's word is to forfeit life itself. This time in Israel's history, it really is a, a bad time. It really is dark days for the people of God. No rain, no words. Dangerous, therefore, notice when the leaders of God's people turn their back on God. Dangerous, therefore, to have leaders who refuse to worship God alone, but who worship idols themselves and encourage people to do it too. Sin really does matter. We're going to see that time and time again in these chapters. The Lord announces judgment on idolatrous Israel, but there's also mercy in this chapter. You see, whilst there's judgment on Israel, the Lord provides for his faithful prophet. The Lord provides for his faithful prophet. And did you notice, the Lord does this through very, very unusual means. Verse 4, I have instructed the ravens to supply you with food there. That's a very odd source of food indeed. According to the Le Levitical laws, Ravens were unclean animals. 
But also, ravens just don't share food. They're scavengers, not sharers. And yet the Lord provides. The ravens bring bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. Of course, um, Elijah has to move on quickly. The, the, the drought means that this brook dries up. And so the Lord provides again, and again it's through an unusual means. Partway through verse 9, I have instructed. Notice the similarity with verse 4, I have instructed. Verse 9, I have instructed a widow there to supply you with foods. Again, that's odd. Widows are needy people. Widows at that time would have been the most neediest of people. They would have been at the bottom of the heap. You didn't ask them for help. They asked you for help. But it gets even more shocking. So it's striking that the detail that the writer wants us to know is not really too much about this widow. We, we don't really know her name. We don't know her name. The detail that we're told is where she lives. It's her location, it's her postal address that the author wants to highlight for us. Verse 9, go at once to Zarephath. And we think, well, what's so significant about Zarephath? Well, it's in the region of Sidon. And we think, well, that doesn't really help us out much either. But just look back with me to verse 31. Right at the top of the page, Ahab not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And so you see, not only is Elijah being sent to a widow, but more than that, he's being sent to a widow outside of Israel. And more than that, not only is he being sent to a widow outside of Israel, He's being sent to a widow in the place where Baal is worshipped. And yet it's very clear that Baal has been completely useless for this widow. Did you notice her response when Elijah asks her for some bread? As surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Desperate situation, isn't it? That The famine has become so severe. The drought has now been going on for so long. The food supplies are so low that she's going to make one last roll of bread and then they're going to die together. doesn't exactly look like Elijah's going to get much food out of her. He seems a little bit insensitive. Don't worry, make me some food first. You can share the leftovers. But notice that it's attached with a promise. Verse 14, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And remarkably, this widow takes Elijah at his words. Her last meal, and she trusts Elijah. And of course, the Lord beautifully keeps his promise. 
the jar of flour was not used, and the jug of oil did not run dry. Day by day, this widow would go downstairs, go to her pantry, and there it was each morning, flour and oil. The next day, she would go downstairs, flour and oil, morning by morning. New mercies she saw. Again, the Lord is showing that Baal is a fake. And the idols, they promise so much, deliver so little. But the Lord, he is the true God. He's the one in charge. Even in the land outside of Israel, even in Baal's home territory. But of course, the reason why the Lord does this is so that he doesn't leave himself without a witness. He's doing this so that Elijah can be sustained, so that he can then take the word back to the people. The Lord provides for his faithful prophet. And yet it's not the only miracle that happens in the chapter. The Lord brings life to the nations. That's our third heading. The Lord brings life to the nations. Another morning comes, the widow heads to the pantry as normal. She finds flour and oil. Her and Elijah have breakfast together. She takes the leftovers up to her son, who's been in bed ill for a few days. She goes in as normal. And yet this day is anything but normal. Her son doesn't sit up. He's lying down, cold, dead. She rushes to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? She's aware of her own sin, her own imperfection. She makes the connection between sin and death. But before too long, the emotions in the house have changed dramatically. Elijah takes the boy from her, carries him upstairs. He cries out to the Lord. He stretches himself out on the boy three times and cries aloud. And the Lord hears. The boy's life returns. Can you imagine the joy? Her son, who had died, has now come back to life. The God of Israel can not only provide in a famine, but can even defeat death to bring life. And remember the shock. Remember, the the main thing the author wants to highlight for us is her location. This widow is a Baal worshipper. Notice verse 12, the Lord, your God, Elijah. And then by the end, she comes to believe. God's wonderful and beautiful grace and mercy to the nations. And of course, this is where Jesus himself goes with this story. Let's quickly turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, page 1031. The setting of Luke 4 is the synagogue in Nazareth. Jesus has been reading from Isaiah. He, he folds up this scroll and he says, Isaiah was talking about me. And verse 22 shows how the people respond. 
all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowds and went on his way. Do you see the point Jesus is making? Just like Elijah the prophet was sent out from his own people in order to show God's grace to the nations, in order to bring life to the nations, the same is true of Jesus. Jesus, the greater prophet, the one who brings God's words, sent out from his own people, in order to show mercy to the nations, in order to bring life to the nations. Jesus proves it just a few chapters later on in Luke chapter 7, where he does what? He raises a widow's son, a son who was dead, and he comes back to life. He proves it himself as he goes through death and out the other side. The Lord can give life, life to the nations. It's a wonderful encouragement for any here this evening who aren't a Christian. The Lord can give life to the nations. It's a wonderful encouragement for us as we go about seeking to share the gospel, even when God's people reject his prophets, even when the people you would expect to listen to Jesus don't. His word is still powerful enough to go out and give life. But before we share that word, before we share that powerful word, we need to make sure that we ourselves are listening to it. Come back with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. And let's look down together at the final verse. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. It's an incredible response, isn't it? This lady who was a Baal worshipper, who then listens to Elijah. Your words, Elijah, are true. It's the model response, of course, for the southern kingdom in exile as the prophets come to them. Would they listen to them? Would they accept their words? 
But of course, it's also the model response for us. As we hear the words of the Lord Jesus, to accept that they are the truth. Of course, we've done that. If we are a Christian, we've done that once. And therefore, we have life. But of course, it's not just a once-off response to the words of the Lord Jesus, but a continual response. Listen to the words of the prophets. Remember the warning. The ones who face judgment in this chapter are the ones who originally belong to God's people. But then he starts to have a defiance for God's words. The ones in Luke 4 who are rejected by Jesus are the ones who originally belong to God's people. But then who start to have a defiance for Jesus and his words. And so Christian, don't be like Ahab. Don't be like the people of Nazareth. Don't make the mistake that many churches are making in presuming that everything will be okay, even if they stop listening to Jesus. It won't be. As a church, but also as individuals, keep listening to Jesus' words. And as we do that, as we keep listening to Jesus' words, as we keep encouraging one another to do that, as we keep praying that for ourselves, remember this widow, a Baal worshipper, now in glory. Us, life to the nations. The Lord announces judgment on idolatrous Israel. The Lord provides for his faithful prophets. The Lord gives life to the nations. As we continue to listen, life raised on that day. Let's pray. Father, we